TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicating bring wellness into our lives. Boys, Damien's in a car sitting somewhere in Perth Airport. I <laughs> just got off the flight, barely made this call. Uh, so good. Brett's, uh, Brett's on board. And we actually, this has been exciting, guys. We, uh, only a few weeks ago, we brought on, after five and a half years, we brought on an expert and talked about hemp foods. And we've been getting a lot of comments and some, some discussions. I think it stirred up a lot of conversation around hemp. And I learned a lot from that episode in the sense of, because I, I have no experience of, with cannabis or marijuana or anything like that. And and just really opened my eyes and see how the stigma and the perception. And we know that from that discussion, there was a lot of changes that's actually happening, especially this year in 2017. So we thought that the, one of the, one of the, best ways to do this is to bring in a uh a, you know medical marijuana expert to talk about marijuana so that to actually get some context around this so that actually people can open up the dialogue and the conversation so that we can actually you know discuss this uh, on the one guy show we have dr patel uh who is a medical marijuana expert uh she she's a medical doctor in the united states and so one of the key things is that as graduate studies in Northwestern University and also has done her medical study and she's licensed to practice medicine uh, in California but more importantly she's been practicing in the area of medical marijuana uh, since 2012 and she basically takes you know treats countless of patients in, in this area and really guides them on the appropriate uses of marijuana so mm-hmm. welcome to the wellness guy show Dr. Patel thank you for having me on the show uh, Dr. Patel I want to ask you this first question I think uh, to kind of really dumb it down for everybody you know what just so that we can get some context, what is marijuana? What is cannabis? Could you just explain that side of things? And we're going to get into all the other stuff about stigma and medical and drug use and all that stuff. So we can let's just start with like let's start with the plant itself. Sure. So basically, marijuana is a plant, and specifically, the the flower of the female plant makes chemicals known as cannabinoids um, that we found over the years has medical value. Um, and the two main chemicals that, that these flowers make a lot of um, are uh, THC and CBD. Um, and as far as we know, based on research, that this is what has the, uh, the medical value of marijuana. Oh, sorry. I was on mute then. I wasn't expecting that to finish so quickly there, Rashna. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to keep the planes the planes out of the... I can't keep them out of the air. I've got to try to keep them out of the microphone. Rashna, I, uh, or Dr. Patel, I had a situation recently, and this may have been um, a little bit different to what we're about to talk about today, but uh, my stepmom, she uh, was dying with cancer. She did pass away, unfortunately, but at, after her death, I was presented with a, a square packet um, with some green leaves that have been chopped up in it, and I was handed to it and said, "Here you go. I'm sure you can use this." And I said, "What's this?" And they said, "It's um, it's a green herb that uh, I'm sure you've experimented with in the past." Now, I've got a feeling that that might not have been medical marijuana. What's the difference between what's found on the street and what's medical? Okay, so main difference is is basically the quality of product that you have access to. So in the United States. Uh, specifically in states where uh, marijuana has been legalized for recreational use, you you have, um, and even uh, where marijuana has been legalized for medical use, you have designated medical marijuana dispensaries. And these are the places, they're the equivalent of pharmacies, where they sell specifically um, medical marijuana products. Now, 
in in some states, not all, they mandate that the products are specifically tested for one, the exact amounts of the different chemicals that are in the products. So you, so people know exactly what's going into their body and what effect it's going to have. Number two, they test for things like fungus and bacteria. And this is especially important for people who are on um, on medications that suppress their immune systems. So cancer patients would be an example. Um, you know, they're very likely to get sick from, if there's any fungus or bacteria in these products, they're very likely to get sick from them. Um, the other thing is, number three, they test for uh, levels of pesticides and fungicides to make sure that, um, that there's non-toxic levels of these pesticides and fungicides if they're used. So overall, you're, you're getting a better quality product and you're, you know exactly what you're putting into your body and what effect it'll have on you. So you have more control over it. Um, and um, they give you, you know, exact amounts of the amounts of the THC, the amounts of, of the CBD, um, and you can pretty much approximate, um, you know, the, the dose that you're taking as well. I'll just follow on for that question. You said something there before which uh, struck me. I thought it was quite interesting because we're talking about a natural product here. And, uh, and I was surprised that you're, they're able to... Um, categorically state how much of the THC and the CBD is actually in the product. Is that within some kind of a range or is that a specific amount that it seems to be standardized to? How would they standardize a natural product? Okay, so basically what they're what they're doing is they're they're using either liquid or gas chromatography to figure out the amounts of these chemicals that are in the products. Um, and it's it, the way it's standardized in Colorado, for example, um, uh, it's mandated by the state that um, you have to mark off um, every 10 milligrams of THC in the product. So say you have a chocolate bar and say, you know how they come scored into squares and say that one square has 10 milligrams of THC, then they need to stamp on there that it has 10 milligrams of THC. Now, from a medical perspective, typically what we know is that if you take more than about approximately 10 to 15 milligrams of THC, that's when the psychoactive effects start to kick in. Um, so that's how it's medically important. I find this fascinating. Um, first of all, I don't know if I've just <clears throat> misheard there, but the medical marijuana, do they make it into chocolate bars or is that just an example of how they do it? <laughs> so, um, they make all sorts of – so you don't actually – you know, the, the common conception is, is that you have to smoke marijuana, but you, in fact, you don't. And I typically advise my patients to not smoke it because it does cause damage to the lungs long-term. So you have a wide variety of options available in terms of using marijuana. So some of the more common, um, methods of use are edibles. So like I mentioned, chocolates, gummies, um, then there's also, um, tinctures. These are drops that you put under the tongue. There are topical formulations of marijuana. So you just basically, it's like a salve or an ointment that you apply to the affected area. <clears throat> and it works because we actually have receptors for marijuana in our skin. And then there's also these methods I don't use as often. It's on a case by case basis, but there are also rectal formulations of marijuana and there are vaginal formulations of marijuana as well. So lots of options. Wow. Wow. My consciousness of how this works has just been exploded. I, I thought chocolate bars was putting it out there and you've just taken it to a whole nother level. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm curious about marijuana because it seems like there's a real uh, stigma around medical marijuana. And I find it interesting because there are so many drugs and medications that are available and that are commonly used and commonly accepted that come from plants and have originated from plants. And people will seem to be totally okay with that and the, and the effects and the properties of those. But marijuana seems to be something different. It seems to be held to a different standard. Um, why do you think there is that difference in, I guess, that different stigma and that different opinion about when it comes to marijuana as opposed to, say, opioids? You know, I think a lot of it is, is political. Um, specifically, the history behind marijuana in the United States, um, I think, has a lot to do with the stigma here. Um, and I can I can talk a little bit about it. But basically, up until the, the late 1930s, marijuana was available at pharmacies over the counter for, for people to purchase. But what happened was that um, there's this lovely man named Harry Anslinger, um, politician who also, you know, was, was known to be a racist, essentially. And what was going on in the 1930s here was the Great Depression, right? So you had lots of Americans without jobs. And at the same time, there was a big migration of Mexicans into the United States. And they, a lot of them ended up taking jobs in fields. Um, now, at the same time, what was part of their culture was re the recreational use of marijuana. So what this man, Harry Anslinger, did was he implemented an exorbitant tax on marijuana. It would be modern day equivalent of about ten to twenty thousand dollars, U.S. dollars. So so basically nobody could afford it. And essentially it made marijuana illegal. Right. So if anybody was using marijuana and they, you know, and, and law enforcement found out that they're using it without having paid this tax, then they get thrown in jail. Um, and that basically sort of um, took hold and and and, you know, sort of kind of st stayed that way for the longest time. Until I'd say about 1996, when um, California legalized uh, marijuana specifically for medical use. So a lot of it is, you know, political. I'm sure there's economical um, uh, reasons behind it as well. But I'm actually curious to know what's the history behind the stigma in Australia? Is there one? Um, I can't answer that. Um, did, okay. Did, did Damien, Brett, you want to chime in on that? Yeah. I, I, it's it's I, likely that we just copied America because we tend to do yeah. that with this sort of stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, almost everything we do in Australia, we just copy you guys. Oh, is so, that right? So, yeah, yeah pretty much, except we drive on the other side of the road and we've uh, converted to centimeters and, uh, and meters. But other than that, <laughs> yeah. uh, we do everything that you guys do. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, I mean, just being from uh, being from Canada originally, and also you know living in Australia now in the last fourteen years, I think you know I would say that's a, a pretty much the same. It's it's just that there is that stigma, and it's interesting because I didn't know about the history because you know it's just it's like. I grew up with just knowing that don't take drugs, right? Like, so it's like the, the Ronald yeah. Reagan era is like, don't take drugs. And that's just like imp imprinted in my brain in a sense. And so I'm not sure if that's why. And that's why it's interesting to see how marijuana is taking, you know, it's time to kind of change, you know, the perception. And that's why we're having this discussion is because it does take quite, quite a bit of time to, to, you know, shift that. But, you know, having said that, yes, from that's a political view, but is there any, I mean, there's got to be some dangers to, you know, uh, to using marijuana. Is there any dangers? Um, if you overdo it, yeah, which is how people have been using it, right? So, so just from a <clears throat> from a medical standpoint, every medication has a subtherapeutic range, right? That's where you're not the dose that you're taking is so low that it's not having an effect 
um, not the effect that you want. Hmm. Then there's a toxic range of medications, right, where you're taking so much that you're now having side effects. And then there's a therapeutic range. That's kind of your sweet spot where you're getting the, the, the medical benefit, but you're not getting any side effects. Now, um, th- the way that people have been using marijuana up until now, recreationally, it, it's that it's been been overused, right? So if you overuse it, that's when you start to get the side effects like like paranoia, hallucinations, um, the the munchies. You know, it's, it, it stimulates your appetite excessively. Um, uh, uh, all those things come from from using it too much. And it, it, clinically, what I found is yes, there are certain groups. Of, of conditions um, that should be more wary about using marijuana. Um, so patients who have, for instance, schizophrenia or bipolar um, uh, uh, disorder, these patients are more prone to psychotic episodes. So if they use um, an excess amount of THC, it's it's likely to, to cause hallucinations and then throw them into a psychotic episode. Then there are patients, obviously, you know, if you have any sort of lung condition, like asthma, for instance, smoking marijuana is going to likely exacerbate that. Um, then there are patients with heart conditions. So one of the other things that using too much marijuana can do is, is that it can increase your heart rate. So if you have an underlying heart condition, like, like a dysrhythmia, for instance, um, uh, it, you know, increasing your heart rate excessively by use of marijuana can can kind of throw you into that dysrhythmia. So yes, there are certain groups of people that should be, um, you know, more cautious. But as a whole, um, here's the important thing to know, you cannot die from the use of marijuana. Um, it, it, there's a, a, a judge that had put out this statement that you'd have to consume 1500 pounds of marijuana in 15 minutes to die from it. Now, 1,500 pounds is is how much a cow weighs. So it's it's humanly impossible to to overdo it. That's that's an incredible uh, statistic. I don't know if there'd be many people willing to uh, take that challenge on. I think Dr. Patel, that's uh, that one's just going to have to be left untouched. I think <laughs> even the paleo people couldn't eat a cow. That <laughs> uh, Dr. Patel. Uh, I'm wondering, obviously, there's a lot of contraindications, or there appears to be contraindications with it, as there is with herbs, drugs, vitamins, minerals, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and the world's become more and more uh, aware of, of side effects, et cetera, et cetera, all those sorts of things. But what I'm fascinated is, is what are the sorts of things, like what, how broad ranging are the conditions that marijuana can be used for? Are we just talking helping people get out of pain, or are we helping people with other things? Sure. So the most common conditions that I end up treating in my in my practice. Now, you know, I'm lucky to be in California. Um, I'm not restricted by the by medical conditions for which I can recommend medical marijuana. In other states, they have a list of conditions and a doctor can only recommend for those specific conditions. So I've actually had the freedom to see, you know, who who it is actually working for and who it's not working for. So the three most common conditions that I treat in my practice, chronic pain. So that's a pretty big umbrella. Um, I see fibromyalgia patients, arthritis patients, um, patients with back pain from, you know, uh, degenerative disc disease, or they have a herniated disc, uh, a wide variety of causes of the back pain. Um, then I treat a lot of patients with anxiety and I treat a lot of patients with insomnia. So those are, those, those are the main general conditions. But then I also have patients, um, who have cancer that come in that are experiencing, um, side effects from the chemo that they're taking. So, you know, what they're experiencing, um, uh, 
that is is nausea, vomiting, poor appetite. Um, I also have patients with multiple sclerosis. Some of the rare conditions I've treated, I've treated some patients with autism because anxiety is actually a big component of of the of the condition. Um, I've treated patients with epilepsy. So it's you know by no means is it a cure all, but it does have a wide application medically. Uh, Dr. Patel, I think, you know, one of the things people might be concerned about when they hear about this and hear about the wide range of things that you're you're treating using medical marijuana is that is whether people might be using it uh, above and beyond, I guess, what it's intended to. In other words, is, is there a risk with this um, that people come in and uh, and sort of can make up conditions and say they've got pain because they want to get access to a safely diagnosed version of marijuana. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the reality is around this. Whether that is a genuine risk <clears throat> or or if it's just a perceived risk, but I feel like that's something that people in the community might be concerned about. Yeah, and it's definitely reason to be concerned. So in California, the laws are are pretty have been pretty lax, right? So what what um, has turned up over the years since medical marijuana was legalized in, back in 1996 was that you have um, what are called medical marijuana prescription mills, right? So you, you have these doctors that just opened up clinics and you can pretty much say you've got whatever, um, you know, insomnia, anxiety, and you'd spend maybe, you know, all of five minutes with the doctor and lo and behold, you'd walk out of the clinic with a card, you know, and then you kind of have the freedom to go into dispensary and buy whatever you want. So have people taken advantage of the laxity of the regulations in California? Most certainly. And have they been using marijuana under the guise of having a, a medical condition? Yeah, it's definitely happened. I've seen it happen. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, it's an unfortunate result, um, of, uh, in California, specifically the laxities of the laws. And I think other states have sort of learned from it and have been more stringent, um, in, in, with the regulations that they have in place. So, um, so it is kind of a fine line that, the, that the, the, the government kind of has to, has to walk in figuring out, okay, well, you know, what's too strict, what's, what's lenient enough. Um, so it, it's sort of kind of an experiment in progress. So one of the things that's uh, a criticism, I guess, that po- that's possible that people have been throwing up out there, that marijuana could be like a gateway drug uh, to harder drugs and, and that's available. Um, is that true? Is there any truth to that? Is, it ha- is there any effects on the addiction to it and, uh, and, and how it affects the brain that way? Yeah. So let me give you some examples. There was a research study done back in 2010. And what they did was they took a look at marijuana use and illicit drug use in various different countries around the world. So in Japan, um, only 1.6% of the population by the age of 29 had used marijuana. Now, at the same time, um, that same population, um, uh, 83.2% of the population had used some other illicit drug. So it goes to show you that marijuana doesn't necessarily have to be there for people to start using other illicit drugs. And then the interest, the other interesting thing is, is that they also studied the Netherlands in comparison to the United States. Now, back in 2010, um, uh, marijuana was not as easily available in the United States as it is now. And it was much more easily available in the Netherlands. But what they found was that there was a higher correlation of illicit drug use 
in the United States than in the, in the Netherlands, right? So here you have a country where it's it's fairly easily available, yet it's not. There wasn't as much of a correlation with illicit drug use. Um, and the other thing is, is that they've also done quite a bit of, of research on adolescents, specifically in the United States. And what they found was that the first drug that they use, the substance that they use is alcohol. And it took them to use, it takes, so basically in terms of what leads to marijuana use is alcohol and cigarette use. So adolescents are not as likely to use marijuana if they haven't used um, uh, alcohol or cigarettes previously. Okay, so that that explains the gateway part of it. Um, Does it still have any addictive effects, though, from an addiction point of view? Yeah, certainly. So it depends. A lot of it boils down to how you're using it. So let me throw some numbers out there. Um, When it comes to um, uh, heavy users of marijuana, okay, um, uh, these are people that are using it either multiple times a day or on an everyday basis. There is, they found, a 9% chance of addiction. Okay. Now, if we compare, let's compare this to alcohol and to tobacco. Um, Heavy users of alcohol, there's a 14% chance of addiction, so much higher than marijuana. Um, And in in uh, you know everyday users of tobacco, there's a 24.1% chance of addiction, so even higher than marijuana and alcohol. But again, it comes down to how you're using it. Um, I like to always equate it to drinking a glass of wine every day versus having a case of beer, right? You're likely to more, more likely to get addicted to having that case of beer on a regular basis <clears throat> than that glass of wine. Um, so it's, a, it's the same thing. Um, so marijuana. Tell, sure. Sorry, Dr. Paul, how does that compare to other drugs though? Like if we, if we're talking, if we say we're using marijuana, for example, for pain relief, um, how does that propensity for addiction compare to other pain relief drugs that are out there on the market? Um, you know, I think the numbers for like opioids, uh, for opioid, um, addiction falls around like 16%. Um, and these are, again, these are people that are using it heavily. Don't quote me on the number. I'm not certain of it, but somewhere, somewhere around there is where, where that number falls. Um, but again, these are people that are, that are abusing opioids, um, not people that are just, you know, for instance, using it on an as needed basis. So the important distinction I want to make is that, um, Typically, the way I'm guiding my patients is that we're focusing on the lowest effective dose and minimal frequency of use. Um, And the interesting thing is, is that marijuana is a fat soluble substance, so you don't have to use it on an everyday basis. Once you do start using it, um, you start to build up stores of it in your fat cells. So it, 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 you, you release these chemicals as you're burning off your fat cells, even on the days you're not using it. So what I found on average is that patients need to use it typically once in a day, um, at most on an every other day basis. And that's at most. I have, I have patients that use it once a week. Um, some can use it once every couple of weeks. Um, and that's sufficient. Um, that's pretty good news, actually, Dr. Patel. I, we're hearing some scary reports about the uh, the significant dangers associated with liver toxicity and paracetamol use and then mm-hmm. gastrointestinal issues with uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And, uh, and so there's hesitation now, you know, for those uh, drugs to be used as much as what they are. But, I mean, paracetamol is still available over the counter. You can buy it in the supermarkets here in Australia. I'm, I'm sure you can get it yep. in easy places in the States as well. But Yeah. Um, 
do you see a time that maybe uh, marijuana, given that it's you know seems to be relatively safe, it seems to be you know effective and relatively innocuous, that it could be over the counter? Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned before, it was already available over the counter in the United States. So um, I don't, I think, you know. But do you think, once the drug companies get a hold of this thing, do you think it's going to be available over the counter? Or do you think it's going to be one of those things that continues to need to be um, prescribed and uh, and, and dose-driven through a pharmacy-type environment? You know, if the pharmaceutical companies get a hold of it, I bet you they're going to try to, like, you know, pu- uh, push as much money as they, they can out of the marijuana. So actually, in fact, that's funny that you bring that up because there is a pharmaceutical company that's formulating um, uh, 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 versions of marijuana. It's called GW Pharma. Uh, they're based out of England um, and they've gotten special permission to grow marijuana in England. Um, and they've created a couple different pharmaceutical formulations of marijuana. And basically, it's an extract from the plant. Um, and so one is Sativex. Um, and essentially what it is, is that it's, the, it's THC and CBD extracted from the plant in, um, in carbon dioxide. Um, and another, um, uh, medication that they've made, made is called Epiodolex. And that is a high CBD formulation of, of marijuana. And as far as I know, actually this, these, uh, their patent applications are available on Google. So it seems like they are on their way to obtaining patents in the United States. Oh, that really concerns me, Dr. Patel. And I'll tell you why. Oh, uh, yeah. Willow, Willow bark, as you know, um, was used as a pain medication many, many years ago, and then it was standardized, and the active constituents were brought out, taken out of it, and it became aspirin, thanks to the Nicholas family here in Australia. And then, of course, um, you know, we now know the long-term side effects of blood thinning and the effect on the gastrointestinal system with extracting um the active component. And then, of course, you said that with all different types of herbs, you can look at um, digitalis officinalis, for example, which is foxglove, yeah. and that's used in the digitalis drugs uh, for angina and so on and so forth, you know, where the active component of a relatively safe herb has been removed and then potentized or standardized. And then, of course, then comes all the side effects. Does it concern you that maybe we're making drugs out of something that could still remain very effective and be natural? Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. There are synthetic uh, formulations of THC. Um, it, uh, I don't know about Australia, but here in the United States, they, they go by the name of Dronabinol. Uh, the trade name is Marinol. Um, and basically, it's a lab. Uh, it's basically THC made in a lab um, and then put into this medication. Now, a lot of times, so it is approved in the United States for cancer patients that are, um, that are having nausea, vomiting, and, and it hasn't, the other prescription medications haven't been effective in treating it. And so a lot of times what oncologists will do is they'll prescribe this medication. But here's what happens. I have patients coming to me saying that, look, I'm taking this medication and what I'm experiencing are side effects of it. I, the times that I've used the plant itself, it gives me the medical benefits and I'm not getting the same side effects from it. So that's really interesting, you know? So here's a direct comparison of someone that's using a synthetic concentrated version of the chemical and they're getting all these side effects. Yet when they use a plant, which does have that chemical, um, uh, they're getting the medical benefits and not the side effects. And a lot of it has to do with that. There are other chemicals in the plant that are helping to, um, you know, um, uh, 
uh, counteract the side effects of the THC. So I do believe that when you just sort of create a synthetic version of just one chemical, you're destroying the integrity of, of, the, of the medicine that nature's already created. Dr. Pearl, it's interesting when you talk about the difference between the natural compound and the synthetic compounds, because obviously one of the major differences between having a natural compound and a, and a compound that's made synthetically by a company is the ability to patent that and, and to have that as just your own. Um, right. Do you think in some way the, the lack of ability to patent what is a natural herb that gets produced has hindered the amount of pressure that's been applied to get marijuana onto the market and more readily available to people at the expense of perhaps other drugs that can be patented and can be uh, you know, owned by a company and, and therefore have more potential to profit from? Um, and what do you think that's going to mean going forwards in terms of the ability of A, the herb, and B, the synthetic compounds to get access to the market? Do you think that it's going to be easier for those patented products to get onto the market than it has been for the natural products? Well, um, I mean corporations do have a big hand in government. So, um, you know, it seems like they have more power um, than uh, than the people do. So, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's, what's going to happen. There are a lot of different factors at play, specifically here in the United States. Um, you have, Like I mentioned, you have GW Pharma that's applying for these patents in the United States, but then you have all these states where people are voting um, to legalize e- marijuana, either medically or even recreationally. Um, so I don't quite know how that's going to play out. But from a medical perspective, what I can tell you is that specifically this company, GW Pharma, what they're making is readily available at a medical marijuana dispensary. The only difference is is that this particular product has been created under more standardized conditions. So, um, and and the specific products that GW Pharma is making, they're not synthetic versions of marijuana. They are actually extracting the chemicals from the plant. So they're not altering it um, uh, in any way, which is the same thing that goes on um, at dispensaries. They're not, they're they're extracting the chemicals from the plant. They're not altering it in any way. So I don't know how that's going to play out, but that is definitely something that's, that's been um, at the back of my mind. It's, you know, it's kind of going to basically be like the people versus big pharma kind of, you know, um, hashing it out. You know, it's been, uh, this has been a very interesting topic and an interesting conversation that will probably continue for the few years to come, especially here in Australia. And and I'm definitely sure uh, in the United States as well and around the world. Uh, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for, you know, being on the call and just, you know, enlightening us with some of those, um, with some of the information you provided us, because there's a lot of information that we had no clue on. Uh, So it was just great to have you on. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, guys, make sure you uh, check out um, Dr. Rashna Patel's website. It's drrashnapatel.com. She also has a great uh, YouTube channel as well, who uh, answers a lot of the, a lot of questions there uh, on short snippets. And so you want to check it out. We'll definitely put these all in the, the links into the show notes. Uh, and so we'll definitely go check that out there. And uh, if all you have to do is really go to the wellnesscouch.com, uh, go to this particular episode and uh, go to the show notes and you will have links directly to the, all the websites uh, if you want to find out more information about this. Uh, while you are doing all of that, make sure you like us on Facebook or to facebook.com slash the wellness guys and also the wellness couch share this podcast with your friends and families and other strangers you think need a wellness update more importantly though please subscribe to us on itunes while you're there please give us great rating and leave a comment there because that's going to help um this show to be ranked higher so until next week begin creating wellness into our lives lead by example and let's change the world's health together join us next week on the wellness guy show 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.